0: feel like oh you know sometimes some weeks it seems so abstract um why is that and i want to encourage you guys the more you evangelize the more you hear people object to christianity the more you are out there in the street so to speak or in the classrooms whatever it is then you see there's a need for that to say hey i have the responsibility to share the gospel and also to defend it okay so um and this is uh, for the record for everyone to know this is our actually our 11th session um uh, I did not count our Q&A that we have And we'll have Q&A later um, Just to review, I've gone over the beginning uh, we be- In our beginning we-, we had a lot of biblical verses to show That we have to defend the Christian faith But we also have to defend it in a way that honors God um, In a way that does not compromise And we've looked at In light of this also, how do we look at For the uh, earlier part We've looked at a lot of worldviews issues Because why people reject the faith is because They have idols in their life the idolatry of their worldviews And we looked at how do we critique worldviews And even defend it in a worldview level And um, this is, The direction of our apologetics now Is less about worldviews it still be in the back of our mind Because worldviews always control everything And slowly I'm dealing with these issues Last week um, is because we're Heading towards last week Beginning last week we're moving towards the direction Of talking about historical evidences Or the fact that Christianity Is historical Okay Could you guys hold it, quick? Hey, girls, could you guys stop uh, with the spoon, with the noise, okay? Um, To be more quieter while eating, okay? Sorry. Um, So we've been this week, and also um, last week, we've been really is the halfway point of talking about worldviews, which is more philosophical. Um, but again remember we're trying to everything look at it biblically and, and this is like the glue To as we go to the next few weeks We're going to talk about more of the historical part And I actually really do like history Apologetics and I know some of you guys I met from the group uh, Most of the times uh, You know when I talk about history I, I think some of the guys in the, uh, in the past Was also like could think like Oh I'm, I'm a guy that's always about presuppositions And I am all about presuppositions And critiquing that But I actually in my life I actually really like reading history Okay, as a hobby and also the area of historical apologetics I felt like my first intellectual field that I like before I was even a Christian was actually history Um, and because of that I also think knowing um, Christianity in a Christian worldview and seeing historical apologetics it actually I feel like wow Christianity is much more historical than most people realize and it's historically true because the Bible says so but even beyond that also outside of the Bible I often find this fascinating so you might ask the question is how do we merge the two to be presuppositional some people think being presuppositional means you never talk about evidence okay i actually think presuppositional apologetics and evidence is match and i'm not an evidentialist uh i'm not an evidentialist because some people think evidentialist means you give evidence i actually don't think that's what it means i think it's how you give evidence I actually the reason why i'm a presuppositionalist is because i believe i have to be committed to god's word first but secondly, also as well, is I actually think if you believe in the Christian worldview, it actually makes sense of evidences itself. The reason why, listen, I'm a presuppositionalist is because I believe evidence is important. But it would not make sense unless you have the presuppositions of the Christian worldview. And it's a Christian worldview that makes talking about evidence even make sense. And I actually would even say, if we look at it even carefully, I actually think the ones that give the most evidence should be the presuppositionalists. Because I would even say... To do history, if you guys remember last week, uh, to even do history needs a Christian worldview. So doing, uh, even, we're not even talking about historical evidence of, you know, this writing or that writing or this fact from archaeology and this artifact. I would even say even the pursuit of history itself is a powerful evidence itself that Christianity is true also as well. And the non-believers suppress that when they're doing certain things that's, I would even say, it's inconsistent with an atheistic worldview um, with that okay so um last week we talked about how history is important as christians the bible talks about christianity is historical there are such things as evidence for confirming things like jesus christ literally physically existed but and also history needs christianity to be true in order for the tools of history to make sense so now i want to look at today's session is about how do you give evidence presuppositionally Okay, how do we give evidence presuppositionally? Okay. Um so any of you guys here give a thumbs up if you guys or rave your hand. Have you guys ever heard of a guy named Cornelius Van Til? Anyone heard of Cornelius Van Til thumbs up, okay? Um raise hand, okay, wow, okay. Now I could happily die on earth because you guys know who Van Til is. Now there's other things so I want you guys to know Christ, not just Van Til, okay? Um who is Van Til? Anyone? Anyone could wanna unmute and say who is Cornelius Van Til? Who is Cornelius Van Til? Anyone want to answer that? Who is Cornelius Van Til? Everyone's so modest. He, he basically found the modern uh, presuppositional... Um, yeah, presuppositional apologetics. Yes, okay. Um, I know Christine you just jumped right in in the middle of us doing this um, Please don't think we're just only talking about names and stuff like that. Is, is, this is the background. Why I'm saying this is because um, Cornelius Van Til is the founder. And sometimes people say things like, oh, he was against evidence. Like he never. But Cornelius Van Til actually talked about hey, there is a place for evidence. But you must always interpret evidence in the right way. Okay? In the right way. Okay? I'm going to quote here from one of his writing. Okay? Um, he writes this. Evidence deals largely with historical While apologetics deal largely with the philosophical aspect Each has his own work But to do so, they should constantly be in touch with one another And this is actually from his writing sorry. Um, This is from his writing from his book um, From from his one of his books called uh, Apologetics okay it's a thin book actually i recommend if you ever want to read Van Til Van Til is very hard to read i actually recommend um his book Christian Apologetics is the best place to begin on uh, page 3 okay um so i'm bringing that up to say he was never against evidence but why did he always talk a lot not about evidence is because before you talk about evidence you need to actually understand the right um things uh with that Okay, so um, for those taking notes tonight, uh, I want to talk today about how do we give evidence when we are presuppositional and even know that. And also, um, uh, this will be kind of be more about method, but we will also um, ground this also in Scripture that this is how Jesus gave evidence also as well. So if you're taking notes um, today, we're going to learn the purpose is how do you give evidence presuppositionally? Okay, or even we could even fill that in. How do we give evidence even biblically also as well? Okay, so these are the four points for tonight. We're going to have how many points? Four points, okay? Um, and it's so unfortunate tonight I didn't, wasn't able to finish in the time enough to make PowerPoints, okay? But these are the four points. Number one is there are no brute facts. Number one is there are no brute facts. Point number one there are no brute facts. Um, by the way, even as we go over this, if you guys have questions at the end, you guys could write it down so that in the end you guys could bring it up, okay? Point number one, there are no brute facts. Point number two, why presuppositions matter? Why presuppositions matter? Why presuppositions matter? It matters specifically when we talk about evidence, okay? And number three, I wanna talk about examples in action with intelligent design. Point number three, examples in action, intelligent design. I'm gonna talk about the frustration that you often see classical and evidential apologetics and also talking about with atheism, okay? Example in action with intelligent design. Okay? And then, point number four, I want to talk about presuppositional analysis. Presuppositional analysis. Okay? Um, under this, point number four is about how do we actually give evidence? And when do we, not, when should we not give evidence? Okay? How do we give evidence? And when should we give? Um, when should we or should not give evidence? Okay? So let me repeat these four points. Number one is there are no... Uh, there are no brute facts. Point number two, why presupposition matters? Why presupposition matters? Number three is example in action, intelligent design. okay? We want, want to talk about how intelligent design um, can be very frustrating for the Christians um, and also the non-Christian. And why is that? Um, because I think the issue is at core is presuppositions. And number four, we want to talk about presuppositional analysis. Um, before we give evidence, we need to talk about presuppositions of the non-believer first. And I think point number four, under presuppositional analysis, we'll talk about when we will and when we will not give evidence. I'll have some acronyms under point number four to help us kind of remember things. Okay? So number one is there, there are no uh, brute facts. And what I mean by brute facts is there's no facts in of itself. That always, when we look at facts, is always interpreted according to what one uh, other other people's or our own uh, other beliefs also as well there's no such thing as a fact that exists in itself in a vacuum but every fact is related to uh, as a web with other facts you guys all ever look at a spider with spider webs you guys ever as a little kid maybe played with a spider web by like cutting off one web and then just seeing oh it kind of shakes and then the spider uh moves i think facts are like that too that they're related a web of belief of all these things. So, no one ever has a blank slate approach. Sometimes you'll hear non believers say things like, okay, we always must begin with a blank slate. But the Bible actually never says we were born with a blank slate. The Bible actually, you guys remember Romans 1, okay? If you guys could just turn there real quick just for Romans 1 uh, 18, I actually think we're all actually know there is a God, okay? If you guys remember Romans 1 18, I know we've covered this, but this is a reminder in Romans 1 18. If you guys could open up to Romans 118 If I could have Jesus Could you be my motivated reader Read for me Romans 118 And the next motivated reader I want to ask if possible to volunteer Or volunteer Is Caleb afterward Um, But for now, Jesus um, If you could read Romans 118 And Caleb, give me a thumbs up If you could be my next motivated reader Okay, cool Romans 118 Yes, Romans 118 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Yes, amen, okay? So it says here that people actually know there is a God. And then it goes on in verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So God is the one that made the evidence good enough that everyone should know. But the reason why God is angry is holding people culpable uh, for their sin is that they actually know God. They, but they suppress that, okay? So there's no such thing as, you know, no one is born a total a clean slate where there's nothing. Like what they call tabula rasa in philosophy where there's nothing you know at all. Because even, man, um, man having a child, I remember um, when I had my first daughter, Rebecca. Rebecca to me was a great philosophical experiment when she was one year, less than one years old. Because it was just so fascinating how kids learn. I know James has a child and and one of you guys, when you guys grow up and eventually get married, right? Man, to me, it's just kids are the most fascinating part of experiments of how they learn things, right? You could, you know, I remember just various things like you could cover their eyes and then they, they still assume that things exist when their eyes are not there, right? There's all these things. There's no such thing as a blank slate. That God has actually wired us to know God and actually God has given us instruments in our mind with certain beliefs to help us even learn and discover things already, okay? So there's no such thing as a brute fact and also there's no such thing as neutrality. I, uh, you know, Gary DeMar, he's a Christian apologist, he gave this example about how everyone always interpret things with evidence. And he gave this example of a story of a race between America and Russia. Two race cars race, and sitting in the audience were two different journalists an American journalist and Russian journalist. The American journalist would, of course, have his bias he's gonna be pro what America, okay. Uh, the Russian journalist would watch the sports competition with two race cars, the Russian and the American, and he also has his bias, okay. Everyone has their bias. So, what ended up happening in this race that Gary DeMar told his analogy is the American car came in first place and the Russian race car came in second place or last place so then the next day when they both journalists write for their newspaper the American journalist wrote this USA number one US Russia came in last place question is that headline accurate America came in first and Russia came in last place with the scenario that it gave of these uh, two race cars and only two race cars answer is yes but then the Russian decide to also the Russian journalist of course he's gonna have to spin this in the most positive way and you know what he wrote as the headline for their newspaper is this uh, Russia came in second place and America came in second to last is that true technically is that true that if there's two race car uh, Russia came in second place yay second place and America came in second to last is that technically true The answer is true. It is. But notice there's a spin. Did you guys realize that? There's a spin because of presuppositions and biases. It is technically true that, of course, America, if they came in first place and there's only two cars, did come in, what, second to last, right? And also, it is true that the Russian car came in second place. But it also came in last and it was also defeated in America, compared to Americans. So I bring that up as an analogy to say that how people could omit certain facts and, and also sp- uh, could spin according to our what, operating presuppositions and biases. There is no such thing as a brute fact, okay? And I was also, this week, just to give examples. This is sometimes how practically, as an example When we are in social media these days We all have to be very careful As Christians, we have to be discerning I'm not going to get political But we have to be very discerning I'm going to only bring this up Is to make the example that we have to be discerning And we must not trust anyone Because of total depravity We have to always test everything, right? We say we must test the pastor to see if he's biblical Always see if it's from the Bible But we also need to check every fact And fact checkers are also human beings with sinners, with their agendas too. One of the fact checking thing I thought was very funny was I saw someone shared about how, you know what, that gas used to be before Biden was president was this cost. And I saw it was flagged. And then I saw when it's flagged, it was actually saying, you know what, the average in America at that time um, is not $1 something. But it was $1, and it added 10 cents more, saying the national average. And I burst out laughing because when I saw factors, oh, this thing is totally fraudulent. But that, that picture, they didn't even say it was fake. It could be at certain parts of America that was the cost. But then it says, oh, at that week, it was when this was posted, the average American average was this amount. And I was thinking, okay, well, now this is an example of what I said about the race car. right? So you gotta be careful, as point number one, there are no such thing as brute facts. We must realize, be on guard. With people spinning things, and sometimes it could be even within our quote unquote our views, our perspective, people in our quote unquote camp, right? So point number one, there are no brute facts because no one's born um, out of a clean slate, right? We all are an uh, empty slate. We all have beliefs already. and number two, there's no such thing as neutrality, which we established um, a few weeks ago. if you if you guys remember, I've argued for that, okay? So point number one, there are no brute facts, okay? Um, again, for those of you guys joining in, we're talking about how do we give evidence presuppositionally. Okay, how do we give evidence presuppositionally? Um, some of you guys are in some of this apologetics group will realize there's all these discussions all the time. Like, hey, precept guys never give, uh, talk about how do you give evidence. Um, this is what I'm teaching tonight. is actually a, an adaptation from an article that I wrote for um, Reform Perspective magazine. Okay, that is published by Reformed Theological Seminary. Because um, I do think there is a way. But the first one is, you must acknowledge, number one, there are no brute facts. Uh, and why we're doing this, again, is just a reminder for everyone, just so that we keep the big force in view, is I'm talking about this because in the next few weeks, I'll talk about um, historical evidence for Christianity. I'll talk about messianic prophecies so that you don't think, oh, Jimmy is all about evidence, is inconsistent with everything the first half about presuppositions. like, no, I'm giving it in a certain way. That is not the neutral, evidential fashion, but it's also in a presuppositional way i think rarely do i ever give evidence to the atheist and non-believer because their criteria is so whack so messed up we need to talk about their wacky method first uh, with that okay so point number one there are no brute facts let's go to point number two why presuppositions matter okay whether or not i would give evidence to somebody or not always depend upon their presuppositions so why do presuppositions matter so point number two for tonight is why presuppositions matter. And I would say there's three reasons why presuppositions matter. Right? We before you ever give evidence, let's just say someone comes up to you and say, Hey, I don't believe in God. Hey, I don't believe Jesus Christ historically existed. Rather than you give evidence right away and say, Hey, evidence A, B, C, exhibit A, B, and C, what I like to do is say, hmm, I'm not gonna go in this because there's no neutrality. This person has all these belief systems and, and I have my own belief system, and I need to find out what is their presuppositions. Why? Why do presuppositions matter? What do I you mean by presupposition is suppositions, which are beliefs that people believe ahead of time, before, uh, prior to talking about evidence, okay? Um, that's foundational. For, like, that, they're more committed belief systems is what I mean by pre- presuppositions. Why presuppositions matter is three ways when it comes to talking about evidence. Number one, the presuppositions are important because they determine evidence point number one one of the reasons why evidence matter so um it's like a russian doll we're looking at the second russian doll now point number two but this one comes with three more sub points okay so why presupposition matter is because presuppositions determine what is evidence okay um remember how we looked at presuppositions a few weeks ago we've looked at all those drawings all those triangles you guys remember of epistemology metaphysics and ethics epistemology being theory of truth right or question not theory of truth theory of how you know what you know okay so what you believe what you know um, will determine that remember a few weeks ago we also refuted empiricism what is empiricism do you guys remember anyone want to unmute and say what is empiricism what is empiricism that's one theory of knowledge what is empiricism if you guys remember what is empiricism? What you can see and touch with your um, with your uh, senses. Yeah, is a belief. Um, uh, ben Wartz hit the gist of that, right? Um, it's the belief that the only thing you can know, what we say is facts and knowledge, is things you can verify by your five senses: see, taste, touch, smell, and hear. But we Christians believe that too. What we see, if it's real, is not an illusion. Is Is true, right? We believe that, but the difference between a Christian belief of knowledge and a non believer is a non believer that's an empiricist says it's only by our five senses. Does that make sense? Empiricists believe the only thing you can know is only if you what you could see, taste, touch, smell, and hear. Christians, we believe in uh, Proverbs, right? Eyes that see and ears that hear, the Lord has made them both. Amen. So that's we have justification for that. But um, if someone comes up to you and say, "I don't believe in God," prove to me only by my uh, well, my five senses. Should you right away give evidence, or do you think you should critique their presuppositions? What do you guys think? We go after their criteria of, of evidence. Does that make sense? We go after their epistemology also as well. Okay. So, so we see presuppositions determine what is evidence it rules out what is and is not evidence that's why we talked about this so related to this is point number two why presupposition matters is people can have bad presuppositions and criteria of evidence point number two people can have bad presuppositions and criteria of evidence okay point number one is is the general truth that presuppositions determine evidence from the example of empiricism, so if someone say, "Hey, I don't believe in evidence unless you could fulfill these five, uh, my five senses," one of those, that we, that's a problem, and we refuted that a few weeks ago. Okay, I'll eventually. Lo- I'm gonna. I'm sl- slowly starting now to load it on certain audio, our teachings. Okay, H- having not loaded in a while, but then we go back and refute that first, because there's no point in giving evidence if the criteria of evidence is bad. You don't want to give what? What is? Um, what is precious to swine does that make sense you don't want to be casting your pearls to swine so you need to be very careful okay so if presupposition determine that a corollary you were extrapolating from that truth point number 2 is people can have bad presuppositions and criteria of evidence and i think when people have bad criteria of evidence what you need to do is refute you need to show the problem with their bad criteria of evidence. You need to destroy it because 2 Corinthians 10:5. 2 Corinthians 10:5. We could turn real quick um, to that verse. Caleb, would you be able to read 2 Corinthians 10:5? The next motivated reader want to ask if possible is James after that, but for now, uh, James, give me a thumbs up if you can, but for now 2 Corinthians 10:5. Uh, for Caleb, okay, Second Corinthians 10:5 and James if you can also give me a thumbs up for the next scripture. Thank you so much. 2 Corinthians 10:5. every thought thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Amen. Okay. Um, Caleb, you're using ESV, is that correct? Or Holman Christian Press? NASB. NASB, okay. Um, so what we see here is, there, notice we're called to destroy things that lifts itself above Christ. Now we don't physically destroy them, we don't pull out a gun or a knife. It's a spiritual battle, right? Spiritually, you subject it to the Word of God and you also show its folly. Does that make sense? To show its folly, okay? So, number two, why presupposition matters because people can have bad presupposition of criteria and when they do, you need to point it out. It's a problem. Um, you guys could revisit the uh, discussion we talked about our, um, worldview. How do you do this it is AIP, right? You need to show it's arbitrary, it's inconsistent, um, that is, and also you need to show it undermines foundation for other things, right? It undermines precondition for intelligibility, okay AIP, that's from Greg Bonson. It's not original. okay. So number two, why presupposition matter before giving evidence is a people can have bad presupposition and criteria of evidence. And number three, I also want to say this too. People don't often think of this. People can have good presupposition and criteria of evidence. Sometimes even non-believers could have actually when you hear them talk, you're like, "Wow. By God's grace, by God's common grace, they have a pretty good explanation about what is good evidence. After all, even today, sometimes in courts, do we not see by God's common grace, sometimes even uh, lawyers and judges have good criteria of evidence, right? By God's common grace. So point number three, why presuppositions matter is because people can have good presuppositions and criteria of evidence. And when a non-believer has that, then you need to press them, okay, to be, what, consistent, them to say, hey, if you have this and I fulfilled this, then you need to accept this because the criteria has been fulfilled and because logically it follows. And if you don't, then you're inconsistent with your good epistemology, with your good criteria of evidence, okay? So these are the three reasons why it matters. Number one, presuppositions are important because they determine evidence, so then a corollary layer, that is you get out from this truth, is another reason is why presupposition matters. People can have bad presupposition and criteria of evidence. People can have bad presupposition and criteria of evidence. If that's the case, you shouldn't give evidence yet. You need to refute their criteria. You need to show like, hey, you have a problem with your epistemology or your criteria of evidence. It's irrational, it's arbitrary, inconsistent, um, self-refuting, or undermines a precondition for intelligibility. Okay. And people have good, thirdly, people have good presupposition criteria of evidence. When that's the case, they would accept the evidence. Or if they don't, you need to say, hey, how come you don't? You laid out very well the criteria of evidence. But why are you not going with what you laid out yourself? You're inconsistent with your method. You need to, compelled by your method, need to accept this. Okay, so you're pressing them, okay? With this, this point of refute and press is going to be very important for later on when we talk about the, how we do things. Okay. So now let me give an example: how if we are not conscious about presuppositions, it could be very frustrating. And one of the frustration could also be an example. Point number three, example in action is intelligent design. You guys know what I mean by intelligent design. Is people sometimes would argue? Christians very meaningfully say, "I'm going to argue that God exists because when you look all around us, there are." Things that shows there are designs, okay? That there are designs, okay? Often Christians, I think, are so fast to give evidence for design, okay? Or Christians are so fast to give evidence. But I also think the Bible teaches that we are need to be innocent as dove and wise as what? Wise as serpents, right? We need to be very wise in how we go about uh, not only wise in dealing with non-believers in general and sin, but I think also wise in how we give evidence okay Um, i do believe in giving christian evidence but as a presuppositions i rarely give evidence unless there's a good foundation okay because i want to be a good steward of the evidence that i know of the evidence that god has given us okay so yet so often when i go evangelize usually in a college campus sometimes a non-believer will see our table and a non-atheist would attack us and a believer would say hey i want to help you out and they would come over and they're right away going to give arguments for evidence for christianity intelligent design and usually in my head, I, I'm very presuppositional But I try to be tactical Even if there's another believer I don't try to argue with another believer I just let the believer keep on talking about evidence Until the non-believers object And show the presupposition And then i am going to go like i am going to go like a I'm going to go like a I'm going to go like a cheetah, right? Focusing on their presuppositions and just go bite that and show the problem with that, okay? So that's how I don't want to, you know, divide and conquer. I just let it be where the non-believers get really arrogant. Then I'll say, okay, fine. Now that we see your criteria, we're going to turn this up back against you and show you have problems in your worldview, okay? So when, when the intelligent design people will present this, Christians, and what's the non-believers' objection usually is? Say, no, that's not design. Everything is by chance that 's nice, they say, but it 's because of randomness of time plus chance, and it 's a random process. you guys ever hear non believers dismiss that. What we need to deal with is actually their metaphysics. their theory of reality is there's already rule out the evidence and also would say if they really believe everything 's by chance it's they need to blow we need to blow that up first, refute that before we even give it there 's a bigger crisis than the evidence. The issue is that in light of this there 's no such thing as even evidence at all if everything's all by evidence. There's no rules of thoughts, laws of thought, and laws of logic in their worldview, okay? It can get frustrating where no matter how much evidence you give and details, um, the atheist will simply say, hey, it just looks that way, but it's not. By the way, let me say this real quick. When I say this, I don't, I'm not saying there's no evidence of de- intelligent design. I actually think if you read atheist literature, the, the evidence for design is so powerful of intelligent design is so powerful they have to keep on saying it just looks that way okay um, it just looks that way um, let me quote some atheists just to give you an example okay um, you guys know Francis Crick anyone here know of Francis Crick he's an atheist scientist he's involved he was one of those two I think Crick and I think Watson was the two that's very involved with um, in the beginning days of DNA right okay Francis Crick says this in his book okay Francis Crick um, in this book what is called mad. what mad pursuit Published in 1990 on page 138, this is what he says. Biologists must keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. And in that book, I think it's fascinating. He's talking about biologists look at this and they marvel when they study the molecular biology of all this stuff and say, Whoa, look at all this. What is this order? This looks designed. And he's saying, Well, don't buy into it, don't be fooled. It just only looks that way. And I think this explanation shows it's not because there's no design. It's because he has a metaphysical commitment ahead of time, presuppositionally, okay? So you might say, Jimmy, it sounds like you're contradicting. You're saying um, intelligent design, um, the evidence is really strong, but yet at the same time, you don't give evidence Is design. What I'm not saying is it's not a contradiction. I'm saying the non-believer, because of Romans 1, suppresses that. And I'm giving this quote to say that they know this, and we need a biblical apologetic strategy that's not just giving evidence. Again, and evidence and an evidence again. We need a flamethrower apologetics. You guys know what I mean by flamethrower apologetics? Is when the Marines fought in World War II, when they went through every island, this might not be politically correct, but it's, it, it serves my purpose, okay? When the Marines were fighting the Japanese, and the Japanese started building spider tunnels and everything else, like Iwo Jima, they'll attack, they invade the whole land on top of Iwo Jima, the island. But what did the Japanese, what do the... 24,000 Japanese inhabitants What did they do? They went underneath their tunnel So the Marines developed a weapon Called what? Flamethrowers I like one of my favorite Marines is a guy named Chesty Puller. Anyone ever heard of Chesty Puller The Marine? This guy is the the most Decorated Marine ever Um, Fought in like 4 or 5 wars or something like that Crazy guy, okay His mouth has this thing, when you look at him You just feel like uh, This guy probably never ever eaten like tofu That's how much testosterone he has and, you know, when he had a flamethrower, they gave flamethrowers. He was like, hey, where do you put the bayonet for that? And they're like, uh, you don't need a flamethrower bayonet because it goes that far. And they will use flamethrowers because why? In the caves, they'll put, the, they'll shoot the bad guys. The bad guys will escape underneath and hide. And they realize, hey, we need to be able to reach them. So that's where they develop flamethrowers. So as Christians, for our apologetics, we need to go down to the very and cranny of their bottom presuppositions and destroy that possibility, Okay. That's what I'm trying to say. Is The non-believers keep on suppressing that. Let me give you another quote. This guy's uh, named Richard Le- 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 Lewin Tin. Lewin Tin is spelled L-E-W-O-N-T-I-N. L-E-W-O-N-T-I-N. He's a scientist. This is actually in Scientific American. In Scientific American book, Evolution. Something that was published in September 1938. Okay, So this is a scientific publication. He's a scientist. And this is what he says organisms appear to have been carefully and artfully designed he's admitting that but he keeps on telling them hey but remember it is all by evolution process so these scientists say it looks like that what the discussion is we all agree we look at it and it looks design christians will say it is design but they'll say no it's just a mirage why is that? Because of their presupposition that there cannot be a God and everything must be driven by chance. That's what they believe. Chance is, by the way, their fill-in word for God it, functionally, okay? Anytime it looks like God, they seriously say, no, chance did that, which is fascinating how people could still sneak that in, some kind of divinity kind of thing that takes a place with that. So what do we do here with this frustrating example? What do we do when we give evidence and right away that keeps saying it just only looks this way? So we now go to point number four presuppositional analysis, okay presuppositional analysis um, just so I don't want to give this idea because we're talking a lot of abstracting and I don't want to give this idea that all this discussion is not based on scripture I actually want, if you guys could turn real quick I'm going to cite this verse first and then later as we go through this I just want to make some observation even when we talk about how do we deal with evidence as a presuppositionalist I want to actually point out Jesus, did he ever deal with non-believers what do you guys think? Yes Did he deal with non-believers That reject the evidence Of him being Messiah Yes Do we think Yeah Do you think we could learn something From the gospels Of how Jesus dealt with non-believers Yes If you guys could uh, And I think that has implication How we do apologetics Which towards the end of our series We're going to go over um, Even Luke With some of the practical way Of apologetics if you guys could open with me To Luke chapter 5 You guys remember the story If you guys open up with me Real quick to Luke chapter 5 Um with what we see here is in Luke chapter 5. If you guys could turn over there, and what we see in verses 17 one day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord who was present for him to perform healing. So here he was, right? Jesus was sitting inside a house doing all these things. I forgot who it was that I asked to be the next reader. Was that you, James, or was it Caleb? I don't remember. James, right? Okay, James, would you be able to read verses 17 and 18? One day he was teaching. There were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there that come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. The power of the Lord was present for him before he went. And some men were carrying a man on a stretcher who was paralyzed. And they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of them. Okay, thank you so much. So here's the situation. These four friends are trying to bring their paralyzed man to go in. There's no place to go in. They break through the roof. And notice what Jesus said as soon as he sees this, he's seeing their faith, verse 20. He said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. By the way, when Jesus says someone's sin is forgiven, is that true or false obviously it's true because jesus is messiah right but notice that non-believers were present in verses 21 did they believe what jesus said no notice the question they asked is like in verse 21 who's this man who speaks blasphemies who can forgive sin but god alone okay so that's the issue they're like wait jesus could he forgive sin now could jesus forgive sin yes Could Jesus prove that he has the ability to forgive sin? I would say one way is he does a miracle. But notice Jesus didn't say right away, hey guys, look at me, I I could forgive sin, I'm going to do a miracle. No, he responds to the questions of doubt with counter questions. And these counter questions, he's asking these questions not to dodge, but actually to explore and ask them to say, what is their criteria of evidence? What are their belief system? And notice in verses 23, Verses twenty-two, he asks this rhetorical question and say, "Why are you reasoning in your heart?" Like he's saying, "Why are you reasoning this way? Why do you have these beliefs?" And notice in verses twenty-three, when we turn to Luke chapter five, verse twenty-three, um, Rebecca, could you come up and read for us Luke twenty-five, Luke five, verse twenty-three, Luke five twenty-three. You could come up real quick, Luke five, verse twenty-three. Thank you, my lady. Luke five twenty-three. Which is easier to say your sins have been forgiven or to say get up and walk okay, thank you so much, okay, so he presents a scenario, which one is it easier to say to get up and walk or your sins are forgiven I'll I, I guess I'll take a survey. who here think it's easier for the Messiah to say your sins are forgiven? actually think about this for a moment. your two options that we're gonna vote for you guys could give thumbs up okay um, and then um If you think it's easier for someone to say, your sins are forgiven, give me a thumbs up. Thumbs up. I see Jesus. Anyone else? Huh. James. Okay, anyone else? Okay, so these two. Okay, so who here thinks it's easier to say, hey, your sins are forgiven? Or Nancy also raised her hand. Okay, Nancy raised her hand for the second one. Um, it's easier to say, uh, get up and walk. Who here think that's easier to say? My wife raised her hands. My daughter Rebecca raised her hand. Is it only my family or anyone else? Or everyone else is non-voting block. Ben Wartz raised his hand. It's easier to say, get up and walk. Fascinating. Because when you think about it, there's a sense where both, that was actually a trick question. Not really a trick question. It's actually to make us think. Let me ask you guys a question. In the Old Testament, were there people that actually were not The Messiah But could still do healing And people could walk in And all kinds of things What do you guys think? Were there prophets? Like yeah So in that sense I think if you're Jewish Operating by the Old Testament As your presupposition To say to somebody Get up and walk Might actually be easier Than saying Your sins are forgiven Because to them They think Hey If you're not God No one could ever do that No matter what But in another way It's also The opposite Is also true too It is actually easier to say to somebody get uh, um, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven if Jesus Christ really is the Messiah uh, and by the way if there's someone that's false, false there's all these false prophets all the time and false messiah they say your sins are forgiven so that way in one sense anyone could just say that but it's harder than to do a miracle to show that God's really with them so in that sense it's hard so the answer which one is hard the answer is actually both and- yeah. I had a point um, that modern science can to some extent heal someone but they can't forgive sins of somebody else. Yeah, so. yeah, thank you so much, Christine. Okay, we have two Christines tonight, okay? Amen. That's true. Because people could be once paralyzed and at times be able to, to walk, okay? So we'll through through development. But when we see here, what happened, what we're actually exploring here is actually the issue is there's some presuppositions at hand. And by the way, one of the presuppositions is they do not think Jesus Christ was even God to begin with. But if Jesus Christ is God, and He's going to show He's God by doing these miracles, right? To show that He is with that, um, then therefore you see how then it becomes um, possible. That if you say He was God, if, if granted He is God, then we will grant that He must be able to do miracle to affirm. And now it is a circularity, right? But it's not a vicious circle. It's not saying, um, Blark is Blark. Like that kind of circular. My, my daughter Rebecca laughed. Because Why? like what is black? Well, black is black. it's circular it doesn't make it's a vicious circle but it's now it's a cogent circular uh it's a cogency which is a form of circularity right where miracles are possible in a christian <clears throat> world view, and if god allows it you could also wait to testify that jesus christ is messiah so then after asking this question he says what verse 24 so that you know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sin he said to paralyzed man I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home, right? Merely by saying it. By the way, who has a power merely saying something to, to do things? That's God, okay? So all this is to show you that there is this discussion. We need to be conscious of, of method and, and all that stuff, right? And they're all struck in verse 26 and they say, we've seen a, a remarkable thing. So how do we then give evidence? I think we need to be very conscious. We need to make people think about criteria. Um, with that, okay. So this is where we're gonna have um, acronyms, okay. So I'd actually say the first thing before you give ev- ev- any evidence, the best way to remember this is RIP, R I P, okay. So you need a first thing is you always need to explore their what evidence, their criteria, their presupposition. Um, because the goal is either to refute their presupposition, if not, press. That's what RIP stands for, refute is the word R, I is if not. If you're not refuting, then what do you do? The the word P is press. You're pressing them, you're pushing them to be consistent with their method of evidence, okay? Refute their bad presupposition or their criteria of evidence. If not, which is the word I, then you press them. If If their criteria is good, you don't have to blow it up. If their criteria is good, then you say, hey, I'm pushing you to say you must believe this or else, okay? So that's where the big picture I uh, would go with this. But then even before that, how do you go explore the criteria of evidence whether to refute it or press? This is where there's going to be another initial, okay? Acronym is the word Dell. D E L L. You know the old you know the computer, okay? D E L L. Um I try to figure out anything else, but this is the most I could try just to make it um as easy to remember as possible. The word D E L L. So how do you explore the presupposition, I think, is the word D-E-L-L. So once you explore with going over the word D-E-L-L, then you know, okay, do you refute the criteria? You don't give evidence and you refute the criteria evidence, presupposition, or if not, if the presupposition is good, you're saying, hey, I'm pushing you and I'm pressing you that you must accept the evidence. If not, then you're going to blow up everything else that you believe, okay? Let me give you examples. of this. So by the word "del, what I mean by that is asking to define things, Okay, let me give an example of design. Um, I'll ask them. Okay, what is um, design? Could you give me the definition? What's the point of talking about design as proof of God if we don't even agree what the definition is? Okay, so you go ask for definitions. So I'm gonna list these four for those taking notes. What Dell stands for is ask for definitions. Ask for uh, uh, examples. That's E is ask for examples. L is then lists criteria. list criteria. listed criteria of what they would have, uh, um, have as a checklist for them uh, to say, if you have this checklist checked, then therefore it's an evidence, okay? So you list them. You, you ask them to list their criteria of evidence, okay? And the last part is then let it rip. I don't know. I know it sounds crass, but I'm not trying to... Is to say, okay, after a D-E-L... Right, you ask them for definitions of things, making sure the evidence, the definition is clear, you know, you're both talking about the same thing. You ask them for example of whatever that thing is, in the, this example of design, you, you know, I would, never give, by the way, I would never give evidence without asking them first to say, hey, give me some example how this is good. Because if they reject it, I'm going to say, okay, if you reject what I'm giving you, then I'm also refuting what you say is good, okay? And another one is uh, after the example then tell them list of the criteria say okay if this is true then what do you need a checklist in order for this to be proof and then after we lay it all out then i would say okay if the criteria is good i'm gonna be pressing them uh to believe it if not good if they have bad definition bad examples and bad lists then i'm gonna let it rip in the sense of refuting them okay so let me say d-e-l-l is this defi- definition I ask them to define ask them for examples Ask them to list things and let it rip. Okay, that is you're either refuting them or you're pressing them to be consistent. Okay, by pressing uh, uh, with the, giving the evidence. Okay, um, so let me give an example um, with evolution. With a correction with design. I'll ask them what is the definition, and we all agree. Then I'll give an example. What is um, some example of design that you see? And I why I give ask them for example first is to make them because sometimes when I ask for criteria, then they start. Um, getting suppressing the truth I actually like to ask example first because there's something they know right away and then that's later on then you could use that to say hey your criteria is so bad that I'm using this example you already said this is a good example of design but if your criteria is this then I'm also saying you don't even you should not even hold to this example by the way let me give it another example this is not just only with intelligent design some of you guys deal with uh Jehovah Witnesses you guys ever anyone deal with people that say um Jesus Christ is not God but they believe in the Bible Like Jehovah's Witnesses I never argue right away You know when people Come knocking at my door With Jehovah's Witnesses I don't right away say Hey guys look at John 1-1 Right because they already Memorized how to turn that Into a pretzel With most Christians What I like to do Is actually say to them Hey what is God? Give me some definition Who is God? And they're well God is God Or whatever else it is Then I'll say Okay could you give um, Give me some example Of attributes of God Right So I go through D-E-L-L It's not just only With historical ar- argument Or evidence design for design, I would say, give me some example of attributes that we know. Um, so I actually, most of the time, I, um, when I go to them, I don't even say, prove to me, Je- I'm not going to go, I'm going to say, I'm going to prove to you Jesus is God. I often begin with asking them what? Hey, how do you know God the Father is God? In all my years, i talking to Jehovah's Witnesses, no Jehovah Witnesses have ever given me a verse right away that the Father is God. Because they they're taught to memorize with proof text to argue with us. So what I like to do, actually most of the time I help them out. Say, how do we know God the Father is God? They're like, well duh, he's Father is God because they pray to him. That means he's all present. Hmm. So notice I'm asking them for definition first. Then I ask for some examples. Okay? But by the way, when you give an example and say is is the father God? So I ask them what is God? God is a being that knows all all that thing. They say could you give me an example? Is the Father God? And they say yeah. Then I say, okay, how do we know the Father's God? Notice I go next to a list of criteria. They'll say He's all-knowing. He could forgive sins, right? Um, I'm asking them for what are the list of criterias for someone to be divine? So then I use the Father as an example. And say, did the Father, okay, if you say God is someone that could forgive sin, that's a criteria of someone that's God. Has the Father ever forgiven people's sin? And then from that, then guess what happened? I, then with that example Then I would give my evidence And say okay you, It's interesting If your criteria Is someone could forgive sin Is that what? Is that um, Is proof that they are God Then therefore the Father is God Right? Because you know how Jesus prayed Father forgive them of their sin Right? And they say yes Then I would say You know what? Jesus also forgives sin Did we not look at Luke chapter 5? And they say no, no 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 Jesus Christ does not have He's not God then i'll turn around and rip let it rip and say okay if this method is consistent then i'm pushing them and say hey you must believe this if you believe god the father is god and they'll say no no but now i'll tell them you know my proof is so powerful that to reject it you will reject that the father also is god my proof for jesus christ is so god that if you reject it you will blow up the father is also god and i'm pushing them Consistently Pressing them all the whole time and say Hey, if that's the case You remove your own ep- epistemic basis For you to even believe The Father is God So this is where we're pressing As an example, okay? You're pressing them with that So you can multiply All these things, right? For example, next week We'll look at an example of this Of talking about how Jesus Christ Does exi- exist in history Okay, I'm going to pull the example Of even them first I never proved Jesus Christ existed Physically in history Until I have them Use their method. Ask them, what's your method? And say, hey, could you give me an example? And say, hey, my po- proof is so powerful that if you reject Jesus Christ as God, wow, the proof is even worth that Caesar, Julius Caesar, didn't even exist according to your standard. I actually think the um, evidence, the nature of the evidence for Jesus Christ is more powerful than Caesar even existing in history. So next week we will look at the example. But at least for today, I want to show us with these points of uh, R.I.P., your goal is always with evidence. Is to Say, if their presuppositions are so bad, you refute it. You don't ever give evidence, right? Because a good lawyer would never give evidence. If someone comes up to me and says, when's the last time you beat your wife? I'm not going to say, oh, look at ring camera. When my wife walked out to the car, notice she's not bruised. See, and they're like, oh, what about parts that's not clothed? What about the part about last week? What about two weeks ago? What about the the, day, uh, uh, the year before you ever have... um." Uh, uh, ring. I would never give evidence for that. I would refute and say, "Hey, why do you think I? Number one, I beat my wife. Assume that in the first place. And why do you even assume I have a wife? I don't know you. Well you just ran into me and just say that, right? So we go after the presuppositions. Okay, let me stop at this point.